Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And we want to welcome you to our part one of Women in Astronomy, our Lady Stargazers episode. We got the uh, original idea for this episode because we wanted to pair astronomy with astrology. We wanted to talk about the origins of humans and, of course, women in particular, looking at the sky and studying what it all meant. But... By the time we got into our women and astronomy sources, we realized, whoa, this is way too interesting. There are way too many incredible women. That sounds wrong. That sounds like I'm saying that there are too many women. But there are so many incredible women and incredible discoveries that we have to talk about that we decided to dedicate a two-parter to the ladies of astronomy from ancient times all the way up to today. Well, this is also sort of an in-depth follow-up on the series that we did last year on women in STEM, dedicating four episodes individually to science, technology, engineering, and math. And astronomy is totally worthy of two episodes because it's the oldest of the natural sciences. So much of what we know about the world and also technology that we use even in everyday life comes from astronomy and cosmology. When we think about the big questions of why we're here, where we came from, how did all this life begin? We don't look down. We look up. That's right. We look up to the stars. And that's why astronomy has essentially is essentially considered the oldest science, because as long as people have been looking up at the stars, there's been a version of astronomy, basically. Well, and think, too, about in the days before electricity, how much brighter the night sky was, too, how much you could see with the naked eye that we can't today. So it's understandable that people in ancient times and even in more recent times have been endlessly fascinated by the stars. And if we go back, though, to the ancient times, astronomy was not surprisingly a mix of science and mysticism. There was a lot of religion and superstition infused in our curiosity with the stars. Yeah. And at the time, I mean, there really was no difference between science and mysticism. And so it all tied in very closely together. For instance, uh, the Mayans, the ancient Chinese and the Harappan culture, which is also the also known as the Bronze Age, Indus Valley civilization in Afghanistan, India and Pakistan. They used the study of the stars to keep track of time and to orient their cities. So that's very scientific, very advanced. They also used astronomy and the study of the stars to try to predict the future. And that sounds like astrology, but really the two didn't split for the longest time. And we should point out that while astronomy is the study of the positions, motions, and properties of celestial objects, astrology is the study of how those positions and movements affect people and events here on Earth. And so, for the longest time, they were just the same thing. And this is coming from a Sky and Telescope article that talked about how, quote, for several millennia, the desire to improve astrological predictions is one of the main motivations for astronomical observations and theories. But then finally, in the late 17th century, astronomy and astrology split into 
the mainstream science of astronomy and the pseudoscience of astrology. And Isaac Newton, for instance, demonstrated some of the physical ways celestial bodies affect one another. And even today, it's still a developing field with a lot to discover. And I'm talking about astronomy, not astrology. <laughs> Although for some, you know, if you read your horoscope every week, you probably think there's, there's also still a lot to discover, which is the future. I actually do read my horoscope every week because how else am I supposed to know how to handle anything that life may throw my way? It's true, Caroline. It's very true. Look to the stars, indeed. Um, but in terms of astronomy, the actual science, it's still a developing field. The first planets outside our solar system, for instance, weren't even discovered until the 1990s. Yeah, it's not like... I mean, space isn't exactly like a tiny contained area where you can, you know, just dig a few holes or look through a few telescopes and figure things out. I mean, there is so much left to discover, and that's why it's such an exciting field. And so people have been making these incredible discoveries forever. Yeah, and uh, you're hearing it here. And only here for the first time on stuff I've never told you. Space is big. Yeah, you're right. Space is big. Newsflash, space is big. We've been looking up. Um, But when it comes to the history of women's participation in the field, not surprisingly, again, it was slow going at first and typically involved women getting into science, whether that's astronomy or another kind of science, thanks to the men in their life or the God in their life. Right, absolutely. And so first, let's give some context about women in science in general from ancient times through the 19th century. And you might think, no, 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 I came here to learn about astronomy. Don't tell me all about general science, although I don't know who would say that. But we have to give you context because... When you look at things that were happening and have been happening in society from ancient times all the way up to now, the whole idea and and the whole landscape of women in science and then women in astronomy, they're all parallel. So let's go back to ancient times because evidence exists of women being involved in science way back when. Archaeologists, for instance, found a carving from 4000 B.C. of a Sumerian priestess physician. So it was not unusual for a woman to serve in a medical capacity. And that included Egyptian women, although probably just the wealthy ones, I would think, who had the choice to attend either a co-ed or all-female medical school. And then if we move to 500-600 BCE, women were treated as equals in many Greek academic and philosophical communities. And if we jump way ahead, though, into 1000 to 1400, which you would think, oh, what a horrible time, probably, just to be a human in general. Right. So much... Uh, lack of plumbing. Yes. So much mud. A smelly time. It uh, was a smelly time. It was a smelly time. And probably not a, an amazing time for women either. But surprisingly, I keep saying surprisingly, I had, there were a lot of surprises for me <laughs> in this research. Me too. me too. But during this time, opportunities for European women hit a high thanks to monastic life. Yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't think so, considering, you know, the whole execution of Galileo and whatnot. Uh, but it makes sense when you think about it, because at this time, the majority of both male and female scientists were members of religious orders and studying the stars, studying celestial objects and their movement was essentially a way to get closer to God, to get closer to the creator who put all of that stuff in motion in their minds. And it also had a lot to do with the fact that the church made an effort to correct the Julian calendar 
and work some things out because they essentially had an astronomical basis for determining when Easter and other holy days fell. And so it makes sense that if you're hanging out in the Abbey slash being a nun or some type of clergyman, like Copernicus, for instance, was a Catholic clergyman, you would participate in the study of the stars. And we should point out before we move on, that all of this fascinating information that we're talking about right now is coming from Patsy Ann Geis from Slippery Rock University in her paper called Women in Science, 5,000 Years of Obstacles and Achievements. I mean, it's a fascinating read. And that was sort of the tipping point when I realized we're not going to be able to do this in just one episode. This one podcast episode cannot contain the whole galaxy. That's that's so right. It's, it's it's just true. It's fact. That's a scientific fact. Um, but you would think that once we get into the 16th century, into the Renaissance, that women in science would enjoy even more opportunities. But in fact, just the opposite happened. The number of women in science decreased because, in part, this was a time when many abbeys were closed and universities, which were often barred to women, grew. And so basically during this time, women who had been physicians or who held any scientific knowledge think from our Women Explorer series, Jean Beret, who was an herb woman who her knowledge became sort of suspect. These women ended up getting called charlatans at best and at worst, witches who were then put to death. So Uh. science, medicine, any of these discovery type fields, uh, they, they weren't trusted anymore to to do things. Yeah, history has long been suspect of uh, smart women. Yeah, (laughs) they must be witches. They must be witches. But in the 17th century, though, with the newly invented microscope, there is a rise in the number of women scientists because with the microscope, this also expands the kinds of sciences that people are Exploring, So you have things like botany and entomology in particular, which are seen as women appropriate sciences. Plants. Yes. Now, a lot of women who might be interested, say, in botany, weren't necessarily going to university to study it. They would often be taught at home. And again, women who were receiving any education at all were probably wealthier anyway. Um And what was interesting, though, is that manufacturers of microscopes and telescopes held lectures that attracted women. So they were sometimes paying attention to women, maybe seeking this demographic, and women were also seeking this knowledge out as well. Women kind of had to do it for themselves in terms of feeding their own curiosity. Yeah, and they did this by picking up the first periodical that was published for women interested in science, which was published between 1690 and 1697. And I didn't dig too deeply into this because, you know, I had to get a move on with the whole star stuff and everything. But I would love to learn more about this this magazine for for women. I think it was called Ye Old Lady Scientists. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, well, then we move into the 18th century and the Enlightenment. And women in science got a boost with help from family. But this typically was just the wealthy and the privileged women who followed fathers, brothers, husbands into scientific fields. And then continuing that trend in the 19th century, we see the number of women scientists who are working with their husbands increase. And this trend continues as we move into the 19th century, when we see the number of women scientists who are working with their husbands increasing. And there was more of a push for educating women 
not for education's sake or to enrich the lives of women themselves, but more to make them better companions for their husbands and eventually better mothers so that they would be, you know, basically more interesting to talk to. Yeah. I mean, you did have at this time the first women's colleges starting to pop up, particularly in New England. And then with that, you would see more funding for research projects and more astronomical observatories being built that women would have access to. But as we'll get into more detail when we talk about some of the astronomical superstars of that time, there was constantly this concern between making sure there was an appropriate balance between education and femininity, Mm -hmm. essentially making sure that a woman didn't learn too much and wasn't so interested in her research and looking up at the stars that she uh, basically defeminized herself, that she couldn't take care of domestic duties as well. Right. Well, so all of that context leads us to the history of women's involvement in astronomy specifically. So let's move back into early astronomy, into ancient Egypt. And here we get the last great scientist of antiquity, as Patty Ann Geis calls her, astronomer and mathematician Hypatia, who was born in 370 A.D., And, you know, we have to point out the whole trend in terms of how women at this time got into science and math to begin with. And Hypatia is the first example that we really get of um, a woman scientist or mathematician following in the footsteps of a man in order to either help him or get involved in science herself. And she ended up following her mathematician father's footsteps. She lectured on math and astronomy at the University of Alexandria, where she was head of the Platinum School around 400 A.D. Head of the school. Head of the school. And uh, in addition to that math and astronomy, Caroline, as you would in the time, she also studied astrology, because, of course, all of those things were mixed together. Mm-hmm. And the significant thing, too, about her following in her father's footsteps as a mathematician, um, and if this name is familiar, it's because we mentioned her in our Women in Math episode as part of that STEM series. He's intentionally mentored her as well. And mentorship will become a really important theme of women's participation in astronomy, as it is always with any of the STEM fields or typically in any more male dominated field period. Now, in terms of her research on astronomy in particular, Hypatia is known for charting celestial bodies and possibly inventing a device called the plane astrolabe. Some sources credit it to being invented about a century earlier. But regardless, she used the plane astrolabe often to measure the positions of stars and planets. Now, sadly, Hypatia's life does not have a happy ending because there was at the time a lot of conflict between science and religion. And in 415, she was murdered by a Christian mob that really hated Platonism. And as you mentioned, she was the head of the Platonist school. So off with her head. Actually, I think she was stoned to death and her skin was ripped from her body. Jeez. Okay. Uh, yeah. A cautionary tale. Yeah, we've never been without conflict between science and religion and Hypatia's just one example. But if we move forward to 1098, we get an example of how religion actually played a part in a woman becoming an amazing scientist. We have Benedictine Abbess Hildegard of Binion. 
She was the most influential woman scientist of her era and the earliest woman whose major works are still intact. And all Hildegard studied cosmology, which is the study of the origins of the universe, in addition to many, many, many other disciplines. Yeah, and she advised all sorts of important men of the day. For instance, the, the Pope would sometimes come to her and be like, Hildegard, what's happening in your brain hole? Oh, she would be like, well... I've had some visions. She had lots of visions. You know what? I actually, I think, if I'm not wrong, I actually read about her in a book about migraines and like oral. oral. Oh, maybe so. Would she get migraine auras? And I think I think she was one of the people. Like a lot of people back in the day, they think Joan of Arc too probably got like aura, uh, which translated into oh, she's getting a vision. She's either let's either kill her. Burn her at the stake, or let's uh, praise her scientific knowledge. Thankfully, Hildegard uh, uh, made the cut, she or did the- not make the cut. I don't know which one of those would work when it comes to beheading. But regardless, Hildegard was a standout female scientist at the time, and it would be almost 700 years before we would get the first Western woman astronomer that we have on record. And this is a woman named Elisabetha Havelius, who, following this pattern of women getting into science and studying science via the men in their life, she really came to astronomy through her husband. Yeah, she helped her husband run his observatory. And after he died, she ended up putting together a catalog of more than 1,500 stars. Yeah, and this is happening in the late 17th century. And uh, Maria Popova was writing about uh, the relationship between Havelius and her husband over at her website, Brain Pickings. And she was talking about how uh, in a lot of times marriage, especially if you, say, didn't come from a super wealthy background... That was another way that you could get into formal education and scholarly work, which would obviously still be happening on more of a domestic front. And she referred to this as a conjugal apprenticeship, which I thought was Mm -hmm. uh, a really fascinating phrase and something that we'll still see moving into more modern histories of women in astronomy because a lot of astronomy teams that discovered a lot of these incredible structures in our sky are married couples. Yeah. Conjugal apprentice. That sounds like something completely different. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I have a feeling, you know, when some uh, astronomers in love go on dates, there's some conjugal (laughs) apprenticeships happening too, Caroline. Well, that seems like a good place to take a break, Kristen. (laughs) Yeah, I I agree. I agree. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some names that if you haven't heard of them, you need to know them because these women are like the supernovas of the early history of women in astronomy. Yes, they are the dense, exploded stars. Yes. (laughs) And now back to the show. So when we left off, we were talking about Elisabetha Havelius in the late 17th century and how she picked up on the heels of her late husband's work cataloging thousands of stars. And now when we move into the late 18th and mid 19th century, we have another woman who gets into astronomy via a gentleman in her life. This time, we're going to talk about Caroline Herschel, who studied astronomy while assisting her brother, Wilhelm. Wilhelm. Yeah, I love Caroline Herschel. I loved reading about her. She's such a fascinating character. But when you Google her, 
you know, the images that pop up, which obviously they're not pictures, people, but the images that pop up are of an old woman, like this crone looking woman. And I was like, oh, gosh, why don't we have any like, why is she not depicted in a, as a positive young lady? Why isn't she sexier on her Instagram feed? <laughs> why? Why? Well, for, I was just suspicious that like are people were people depicting her as an old crone because... You know, social things of the era. They didn't, you know, young women, it wasn't appropriate. And then I came to realize, as I actually read, beyond just looking at Google image results, that she got into astronomy and made her major discoveries much later in life. She started out uh, pursuing music. She was from a very musical family. She was the only girl in the family. Her father was very musical, and Wilhelm was also very musical. And she actually kind of had to make a choice eventually in her life about whether she was going to continue pursuing music, because her, her career was pretty successful, or follow her brother into astronomy. Now, before she had to make that decision, though, can we talk for a minute about her mother and how awful her mother was? Because Caroline Herschel was not a looker. I mean, as you mentioned, you know, if you if you see her, she does. I mean, she does look like a prototypical old maid spinster type. Mm -hmm. And her mom realized pretty early on that Caroline probably wasn't going to snag a husband anytime soon. She was also very short. I think she was like four one. Um, and so her mom's plan for her was to stay at home and clean. Mm-hmm. It was like a, she wanted her to be Cinderella, yeah. essentially. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, so Caroline basically says, screw that and follows her brother from Germany to England, where he, they're both pursuing music, but he's also studying astronomy. And when her brother went away, when he left their house, she used his reflecting telescopes, which she had helped him and their other brother build, by the way. In addition to studying astronomy and math, and so in 1781, Wilhelm, I'm sorry, I can't, I have to say it that way, Wilhelm gets famous because, no big deal, he discovered Uranus and then ends up accepting a position as a royal astronomer. Yeah, and he ended up bringing Caroline with him, and by this point, Caroline had soaked up so much astronomical knowledge from Wilhelm, and she'd spent a lot of time at the house. Uh, by the way, she was also his housekeeper on the side. Yeah. But in her spare time, she would do what was called just sweeping the sky of just using the, a small telescope to scan the heavens to see essentially what she could see. And through that, through that kind of rote uh, sweeping for lack of a better word. So she was sweeping at the house, but also sweeping, sweeping the, the sky. sky. <laughs> Indeed. Mm. But through that, she, you know, you, you sort of develop this uh, internal map of the stars, which allows you to then see new things that might pop out to you. So when she goes with Wilhelm, she becomes appointed as a qualified assistant and then starts earning a salary of 50 pounds a year, which makes her... The first woman to earn a salary for scientific work. Yeah, and I think what's so interesting about her is that not only did she follow the trend of getting involved in science because of a man in her life, but because she was already sort of transgressing social norms by not marrying, by not staying at home and doing the housework for her mother and the rest of her family, it's sort of... I mean, it sort of freed her up to live this incredible life. And so in 1783, she discovers 14 nebulae. And between 1786 and 1797, she discovers eight 
comets, she eventually compiles two entire catalogs of stars and then receives a whole bunch of awards in the 19th century. Yeah, in 1828, the Royal Astronomical Society awarded her the gold medal and in 1835 named her an honorary member, which was a big deal because, as you can imagine, there were not many other women, if any, who were getting these same kinds of accolades. Then in 1838, the Royal Irish Academy of Sciences appointed her, then at 88 years old, to its ranks. And in 1846, at 96 years old, she was awarded the gold medal of the Prussian Academy of Sciences. And I wonder, Caroline, if any of this, Caroline, uh, co-host, not Caroline (laughs) Herschel, but you as well, Herschel, if you're listening, I wonder if any of this really would have been possible if she had married, even if she had still discovered all the nebulae, all the comets. I have a feeling there would have been a lot of discomfort among the scientific community of this woman who was also trying to be right. a wife and a mother because there was, I mean, there were two distinctly separate spheres. Well, I mean, God, like up until the, I mean, even still today, if you want to be honest, but I mean, up until the 70s, 1970s and 80s, there was still an attitude of like, oh, well, we don't want to hire a wife, somebody's oh, wife, because yeah. she'll, she'll either leave because she wants to have babies or she'll, she already has babies and she'll need to leave at some point to take care of them. I mean, like there, there are still issues of separate spheres that we tackle today. But the fact that she wasn't married, the fact that she followed her brother into science meant that she had all of this time to dedicate to this wonderful field of science that she absolutely loved and became passionate about. And it kind of echoes things that I've read modern women in the STEM field say that, like, God, I wish I had a housewife. Oh, yeah. You know, like you can accomplish anything. Anyone can accomplish anything if they do have a little help at home sometimes. Well, and incredible, too, that not only does Herschel follow in her brother's footsteps, she also ends up eclipsing him mm-hmm. career-wise. And yes, that was a little bit of an astronomical pun. <laughs> uh, well, one of the big hitters, one of the giant celebrities, one of the big stars, you might say, Kristen, mm. in early astronomy is Mariah Mitchell. And if you've watched Cosmos, if you've studied anything about astronomy at all, you probably know Mitchell's name. She entered the field because, A, she received a great education thanks to her Quaker family and upbringing. Plus, she had a father who inspired her interest in astronomy. And not passively. It wasn't like he was studying the stars and she was like, oh, my, that looks very interesting. He actively took a role in bringing her into the study of the stars. Yeah, he taught her about surveying and navigation. She helped him calculate the position of their house by observing a solar eclipse. And together they acquired astronomical equipment and conducted observations. And this mentorship was so effective. And obviously she had an innate gift for astronomy on top of this, that by the time she was 14, sailors were entrusting her to essentially plot out navigational routes using the stars for long whaling trips. Yeah, can you imagine like this 14-year-old being like, okay, and then you're going to take a left here at this star. Take a left at, once you see Cerberus. And <laughs> that's that's the and extent then, of my... Right, straight on till morning. I don't know anything else. <laughs> exactly. Um, oh, by the way, though, for listeners who are cringing, thinking her name is Maria Mitchell, not Mariah Mitchell. Yes, it is spelled to look like Maria M-A-R-I-A, but it is pronounced 
Mariah. That's right. That's right. And Mariah is our first professional female astronomer here in America. And so let's tick off a few of her accomplishments. So in 1847, Mariah discovers a comet. And three years later, in 1850, she becomes the first woman elected to the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And by this time, though, she was the only female astronomer in the United States. And in 1865, she becomes an astronomy professor at Vassar College, where she stayed until she retired in 1888. And her salary, though, even though she discovered a comet, she received a medal from the King of Denmark, among other awards for this discovery and other discoveries that she made, even still. When she goes to Vassar, which is a woman's college, but at the time, women's colleges did not necessarily mean that they were staffed by women. There were very few female faculty members. Her salary was a third of that of her male colleagues, and she battled the administration on the topic, but eventually withdrew from the fight. And there was a letter that she wrote, or maybe a diary entry that she wrote, I want to say in the 1870s, where it's clear that she has resigned herself to the fact that this wage gap exists, but she was so invested in educating women in particular that she didn't care. She was like, this is this is my calling. This is women need this education and I will do it regardless of the compensation. Yeah. And sort of the attitude of like, Okay, I fought this fight, but I need to get back to what my purpose is. And I also love, Caroline, the photographs of Mitchell with her students at Vassar uh, doing their astronomy research, you know, out with telescopes, but all dressed in 19th century garb and their hair all pinned up, but still doing this science. Yeah, this is definitely before the era when people were told to smile in photographs. (laughs) Mariah and her students, definitely. It's like, oh, did we catch you at like a really bad astronomy moment? Like you guys look really upset. She was a very serious looking (laughs) woman. And she was very serious, though, on just the importance of women understanding and embracing their own intellectual Prowess, yeah, which might seem so basic now, but considering that 19th century context was quite revolutionary because it's in the late 19th to mid 20th century that we have in the background of astronomy these issues of confronting women in the workplace, divisions of labor and the professionalization of astronomy as well. That's right. And it's around this time that we start to see increasing numbers of women in astronomy. And that's great, right? But the thing was, from 1859 to 1940, while a third of the people working in the astronomical community were women, most of them were sort of shoved off into more clerical type jobs. And they didn't always stick around for that long. 50% of these women had careers that lasted less than five years. 22% lasted just a year or two. And only 12% had careers longer than 25 years. And of course, this means that naturally women, even the ones who were working outside those clerical boundaries that were established, accrued even fewer awards and honors than they otherwise would have. And obviously, too, that this low retention rate was partially due to being shoved out, but also the fact that most women's aspiration was 
wife and motherhood. Well, yeah, and society and employers were telling them, too, that they sort of had no choice. It's like, oh, you've gotten married? Okay, see you later. Yeah, there was this great phrase called uh, buttons and breakfasts that came up in this paper we were reading on the history of women in astronomy and essentially buttons and breakfast, obviously um, encapsulating domestic duties and the concern of many male faculty members at the time that women like Mariah Mitchell were perhaps good at stargazing, but could they also attend to buttons and breakfast? And there was this one letter from, I, I think he was a, a faculty member at Vassar, who was talking about how pleased he was that when he went to Mariah Mitchell's house, her housekeeper actually had the day off or, or wasn't there for whatever reason. And you know what happened, Caroline? What? She still... She cooked a dinner all by herself, and it was lovely. Yeah, this was a letter that the, an emissary for the Vassar College founder wrote assuring him that Mitchell was just a fabulous cook and all-around great lady. She's still a woman. Yeah, don't worry. She still has lady bits that enable her to cook dinner, unlike you or I, fellow gentlemen. But that whole buttons and breakfast thing comes from this conversation between... Wellesley physics and astronomy professor Sarah Frances Whiting, who fielded a question from a famous European researcher whom she did not name. And apparently he said to her, he was visiting her because she was pretty awesome and they were having a great conversation after dinner about the stars and whatnot. But he couldn't stop himself from asking if all the ladies should know so much about spectroscopes and cathode rays, who will attend to the buttons and breakfasts? Who indeed. And so I love that, like that you can have an amazing and accomplished professor who still. And is that any different from any like interview you get in a fashion magazine today talking to an accomplished woman like she still has to field questions about having it all, doing it all. What happens if you get too accomplished and you can't perform your womanly duties? Well, Caroline, little known fact, that is why both the zipper and the toaster were invented. So that's not a fact. Made that up. <laughs> it, it actually had no, yeah, I don't know. Uh, who will attend to the zippers and toasts? <laughs> now, when we move though into the work at hand in the observatories, there was still a highly gendered pattern of work, often reflecting too the whole buttons and breakfast, these assumptions about what women were good at and what was appropriate work for women. So for that reason, even as the numbers of women in astronomy grew, there were still pretty strict gender specific rules as to who collected the data, who reduced it, who analyzed it and who published the results. Right. And that's pretty important because who publishes results has everything to do with who gets the awards and the accolades and the fame and fortune. And this is coming from John Langford and Ricky L. Slavings, who wrote Gender and Science, Women in American Astronomy from 1859 to 1940. And they talked about how the assignment of roles that women received in astronomy reflected the perceptions that male astronomers had of female astronomers or female people in general, and how those roles really mirrored the values in American culture at the time. And let's be honest, uh, now too a little bit. Um, but we we get an inequality issue sort of from the get go. 
uh, in terms of the differences in the careers of men and women in astronomy, because it starts with entry level positions. And so women were often shunted over onto a track with limited mobility, low pay and little room for intellectual independence. Only at the women's colleges, they write, did female astronomers have freedom to choose and research the problems that they basically wanted to. Because you basically had these women pouring over images of the sky for hours upon hours upon hours, looking for little hints that something major was going on. And then they would eventually pass that data off to a man at the observatory or at the college, and he would get all the fortune and glory. Yeah, and also, in addition to the fortune and glory, too, he would get the place in the science textbooks. Mm -hmm. Um, And in these factory-like settings, though, yes, women were given these low-paying, quote-unquote, clerical kinds of jobs, but in the same way as happened with the history of women in computer science, the kinds of calculations and the data analysis that they were performing was anything but low level. Right. Yes, it was tedious. Yes, it involved a lot of, you know, just constantly looking, almost sweeping. Again, that word comes up over and over again, sweeping these images of blots, essentially, and trying to figure out w- what they meant. Um, but this kind of work was foundational for everything that we know about astronomy today. Absolutely. And so here's an example. In the late 19th century, Lewis Boss hired a bunch of female high school graduates to do long and involved calculations for him. Again, scientific work, mathematical work that involved a lot of concentration and long hours. But he hired women who were high school graduates because he figured he didn't need specially trained workers for the task. Men did the observing through telescopes. Women were tasked with measuring spectrograms, computing star places and reducing photometric data. Yeah. And when it comes to why women were considered especially right for those kinds of tasks, it all has to do with this assumption of women being, you know, really patient and caring. And we also did a lot of needlework that back then. There were lots of comparisons to the, the tedium of needlework and the tedium of scanning the skies or scanning uh, this photometric data. Um, even Mariah Mitchell talked about this. Uh, she said, quote, routine observations, dull as they are, are less dull than the endless repetition of the same pattern in crochet work. And she was talking about that in the context of why women are especially fit for astronomy. And while that might sound, on the one hand, it is kind of sexist in a way, but on the other hand, it makes sense given the constraints of the time and what Mm -hmm. women did in their day-to-day. Mariah was simply saying, well, we already do this. We're really good at needlework. You know what we'd be even better at? Science. Right. And I mean, but this, of course, tied into I mean, speaking of sexism, I mean, it tied into all sorts of cultural and social ideas at the time about what women were capable of. Frank Schlesinger, for instance, who was the longtime director of the Yale University Observatory, agreed with those who came before him, including Lewis Boss, that women were more cut out for work that called for patience and great care to avoid errors. But. Quote, according to my experience, women are not as creative as men of equal training. And like that, you know, mentally, I just I throw all my papers up in the air, because if you don't give women or really anyone, if you don't give a human person a chance to do something amazing and creative and scientific and technical, how will you know that they can do it or not? You know, like women were being shunted into these more, quote unquote, clerical jobs. 
and men were the ones who were doing all of the quote unquote creative observation work. But so how can you formulate an opinion that women aren't creative in terms of astronomy when you're not even letting them have the chance to do the work? Probably because they wouldn't even want to know that women have that opportunity. Because if we figure that out, that women are so capable and creative, et cetera, et cetera, then who will take care of the buttons and breakfast? The breakfast! It's the buttons and breakfast problem over and over again. Um, but even within this factory-like system, as we're going to talk about in part two of Stargazing Women... There's this guy named Charles Pickering, who is the director of the Harvard Observatory, who decided that he could bring all these women in to be his so-called computers and, and maintaining those same constraints of just giving them this photometric data, look at it, catalog it, do all this clerical kind of work. But what he didn't bank on, I don't think, was the sharp minds that these women had and what they would do with this information that they were given that literally laid the groundwork for everything we know about stars and all of the subsequent astronomical discoveries that would happen in the 20th century. Oh, I can't wait. Me neither. (laughs) But listeners will have to. They'll have to. But so we should ask here at the close of part one of our Lady Stargazers episode, who are some of the historical names that we've left out? I mean, we couldn't talk about everybody. Yeah, and are there any astronomers listening? I hope so. I know we have lots of scientists among our listener base, so we'd love to hear from you. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast and message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. And now back to the show. So I've got a letter here from Thomas, a subject line listener mail from Taiwan. Thomas writes, I'm a regular listener of your podcast and wish to express my appreciation and support of your show. I'm a high school boy studying in Taiwan, and as is the case in most Asian countries, we seldom discuss matters of gender and sex. Owing to history, most prestigious senior high schools here only admit students of a particular sex. I myself am studying at an all-boys institution. When I discovered your podcast, it was like opening a treasure chest of hidden knowledge, and I learned a lot of practical and interesting information about the opposite sex. Needless to say, my male friends were amazed by my newfound insight. Thanks for all your episodes, and although your audience seems to be mostly female, I hope that more guys can join the party. It would certainly create a smarter society. Ooh. So thanks so much, Thomas. We want more guys to join the party, too. Absolutely. Guys, come on. Party's open. Totally. Uh, Okay, well, I have a letter here from Carlisle, subject line, a newly minted lady lawyer. She says... I was surprised to find out that most women in law are expected to wear heels, at least in New York City where I work and at my particular firm. I'm not a huge fan of heels, but it seems especially ridiculous when I'm just walking around the office. Additionally, peep toes are a huge no-no. Furthermore, when I was interviewing for my quote-unquote big law job from a top law school, I was told black or navy suit, white button-down, conservative jewelry, and heels in order to quote, not offend anyone. The struggle is real. 
I know it is, Carlisle. Thank you for your story. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our videos, blogs, and podcasts with this one, including our sources, so you can learn more about lady astronomers, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.